Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I'm Travis Dow and this time we're going to end the series of the Franks and wrap up all the little loose ends I had. Um, There's still so much I left out and I'm still going to leave a lot out, but at least let me fill in all the gaps from Charles the Great to the Saxons, basically. And that kind of makes this my favorite episode of the series, actually, because this is a crucial episode to pay attention to because we're in the transition between the Frankish empires and the Holy Roman Empire. And this was, at least years ago, this was kind of one of my own little curiosities is to try and unthread um, the difference between the two and where the Holy Roman Empire really started, where Germany itself really started, like the Kingdom of Germany, and when you could start calling it Germany in German. Um, this is one of those episodes that kind of uh, fills in that picture. But even more importantly, I didn't nearly get enough time to talk about Aachen. I just couldn't fit it in because there's so much cool stuff that I just felt like I couldn't do it justice, just cramming it in with uh, Charles the Great. So I'm going to start with that. And also, uh, we kind of ended with Charles the Great's death last time, basically. But if you've listened to The Secret Cabinet, you know that often the death is just the beginning of the journey. And so Charles Remains also had nearly as many adventures after death as he did in his lifetime. And finally, I'll wrap up with the Franks, saving all the best trivia for last, basically. Kind of what makes it all make sense in my head, at least. So now to go back to Charlemagne for one minute, uh, he resided. So I mentioned that he was a traveling king um, and his capital was wherever he was and where his court was, wherever, you know, on the road, half the time outside in a field. But he resided in Aachen most of all, more and more and, you know, more more often as he as he aged. Um, so if there was a capital in Charles Charlemagne's time, Aachen would be kind of the better than average candidate, um, one of at least four, but Aachen would probably be the crown jewel, his, his favorite of all of those. And it was Aachen, not just Aachen, but in Aachen really he chose as the site to display his power as king of the Franks and the Lombards in the form of a building. So not just in his own person and wandering around with all the people in his courts and his armies, but he did, you know, try to emulate the Roman style a little bit and show prestige in a building. But not in Rome, even though he ruled Rome. In Rome he stayed in the Vatican quite humbly, did not rebuild the imperial palace. And he wanted, like many after him, by the way, but with different cities, he wanted to turn Aachen into a second Rome. And the city hall, the Rathaus, today is on the site of the Pfalz, the, the, the imperial residence in Charlemagne's time. And by the 14th century, that original palace, that original old residence, was starting to crumble and the locals decided to use the foundation for their new city hall. It wasn't an imperial city, really, so, um, but the patron saint is Charles the Great the patron saint of Aachen. 
And the town hall in majestic Gothic style still has its entrance devoted to Charles the Great. He definitely still gets props in that city, even though there's not a whole lot of um, original stuff from him today. And the Imperial Hall or the Coronation Hall inside the town hall, um, coronations were held until 1531. So a, a good 700 years after Charles the Great's death, he did set a precedence there. So remember, Charles himself got crowned in Rome. His imperial thing was in Rome, but now the German kind of imperial coronation was in Aachen. Even if they just traveled there to get crowned and then would leave again, still, they would, they would go to Charles's city. And now if you go there, you can see frescoes from the 19th century, the kind of romantic period um, showing scenes from Charles's life. Again, kind of a, it's kind of the birth of nationalism and going back to, to roots and trying to find, um, at least trying to make your country seem as ancient as it can. And in Germany's case, that's, that's Charles the Great. But Old Chuckles himself was buried here until, and there's another great story, until Barbarossa, who's definitely a future episode, uh, had him exhumed in 1165 in order to have his remains blessed as relics. So he was on his way to sainthood slowly, but Charlemagne's uh, remains were considered like pilgrimage-worthy relics. And apparently the um, he wasn't just buried in a medieval coffin either. He was buried in a Roman sarcophagus that dated to 200 AD. And the church treasure in Aachen is still the richest treasure in Central Europe. So, I mean, it's just that that really is saying something. And not just from Charles the Great's time. It's not like originally his gold, but it gained throughout the centuries by being this imperial coronation site and the double whammy of it being a pilgrimage site for centuries. So it was making a lot of gold. It was gifted a lot of precious objects. And it still to this day has the largest treasury. The church treasury is the largest in Central Europe. For instance, uh, Louis XI added to the treasury in 1481 by gifting these really nice reliquary cases for Charles's remains. And Charles V, if uh, see the Bohemian podcast, used Charles the, the Great's original imperial throne for his coronation in Prague, which, yeah, that's, that was an episode, and then gifted the throne to Aachen. And that throne now, today, has the skull of Charles the Great in it. Basically, when you sit on the imperial throne, you are literally sitting on his head, above his head, I guess, but um, yeah. And the most holy relics there aren't even Charles the Great's remain. They're inside a case from the 13th century, and the relics themselves is the Holy Mother Virgin's dress, so St. Mary's dress, Jesus's diapers, and the decapitation towel. Um, I'm not sure if the English is, my translation there is correct, but the decapitation towel from John the Baptist. Is, is that a word? Um, and also, so we got uh, Jesus's diapers, but also the loincloth, the, uh, basically the tidy whities of the fully grown Christ. Now, um, by the way, I personally doubt hard if any of those were real relics, but that's beside the point. That's, that's what people thought. That's why people, I mean, it was a pilgrimage site. People went there. So that's, I mean, that's how I, in my podcast, I treat it the way people at the time thought of these objects. I'm pretty sure that none of that stuff was real. But anyways, they would be opened every seven years for pilgrims. So every seven years would be a big pilgrimage where people from all over would come to see these objects where they'd be displayed just, you know, once. 
And basically, it seems that every German and also many French kings after the 15th century kind of needed to put their stamp on this shrine. So they would, you know, try to build this connection to it. For instance, the Hohenstaufens, who I'll get to far later, uh, a different dynasty of well, the the more important dynasty in um, in Germany, added to the treasury and cathedral later. And the original crypt of Charles isn't even known because Otto III, who's coming very shortly in the Saxon episodes, and then later Barbarossa had opened it. And the remains were taken out and the original resting place lost because then they, they kind of upgraded. Um, remember, the cathedral was crumbling, so they, you know, they had to move all the stuff anyways. Um, but we no longer, so we don't have the original shrine and its original religious and political meaning. The meaning, and this is what I find, this is why I bring it up because I personally find this frustrating. I wonder how Charles the Great himself, he, so he had the first cathedral, not cathedral, like a basilica, a little chapel kind of built where his remains were put to rest. I imagine it was fairly humble, even though he was trying to be grandiose and show off and he had marble brought from Rome and all that stuff. Um, still, I think it was much more humble than later having his bones dug up and then named relics and then having other relics added to them and then put on display and then having his skull put in the throne and people sit on it. I think, you know, this is a just, just orders of magnitude removed from Charles the Great's original intent. And that's why I think, even though it's fantastic today, and if you go to Aachen, you can see the history, you know, go, going all the way back to the 14th century. And then, of course, there's these rel these relics that are even older, but we have no idea. We have no idea of the context how Charles the Great's vision was for Aachen. That's just gone. It, it, you know, hundreds of, in the high Middle Ages and even later in the Renaissance, um, people had their own ideas and and refashioned Aachen in the way that they shot, thought it should be. So the town hall is all of a much later era. If you do want to Google his throne, it's it's a stone throne. It's really famous. At least, I mean, I've seen pictures in school growing up in Germany, so it's famous in my mind. I don't know. Maybe you've never seen it, but um, it's it's a just a, looks like a block of stone, but it's got six steps leading up to it. Very solid, and it's kind of meant to remind of Solomon's throne, but it's it's cold, hard stone, all 90 degrees, very pious, yet regal, you know, but also humble. I mean, so it's it's just, it's very Charles the Great. It's like stout and humble yet strong. I, I would go look at it. It's 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 interesting. It's just a, a um, very humble thing for someone to travel halfway across Europe to pay homage to as, as a, you know, as a relic and, and that kind of thing. So I just thought that whole history is interesting. I'll mention this, you know, because I mentioned all these characters later and they just, they keep going to Aachen. They keep going to Charles's grave and French kings also. So that's what I think is so interesting. That's why I wanted to kind of bring all that up again and mention the site where all this happened centuries and centuries after Charles the Great's death. So his, just, just his remains have a longer history than he himself does by, again, orders of magnitude. 
Now, was this the Holy Roman Empire? And like I said last time, nope, that was kind of a, a false start. This, this was a, a flicker in the darkness, really, because um, we talked about the Carolingian Renaissance last time. Oh, I have one correction. Um, so the Nazis didn't like Carolingian minuscule. Mini so I, I should probably clarify. I know that. They, they liked, they used black letter and specifically they liked Fractura. Those are derived, are descendants from Carolingian minuscule. But there's, a, there's definitely a couple of generations and hundreds of years of evolution and difference between those fonts, between those typefaces. So yeah, I, I shouldn't have oversimplified it to that degree. Uh, Carolingian minuscule is where we get the lowercase letters from in our current form, all that stuff. But but yeah, there was, I mean, the Nazis, yeah. Right. Okay, but anyway, so the whole empire revolved around this one man. So despite what I just said about Aachen, really his capital was where he was. And when he died, the country died. So he held absolute power in a way that few others have in history ever. You know, we're talking Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan and Charlemagne. And and that's and it's a really short list, you know, and then 20th century dictators. And even then, I mean, this man was just was just such a charismatic leader. Everybody liked him. People just wanted to follow him. And when he died, his word just became even more important. It, be, you know, more things got added to what he supposedly says, and it was treated as law and canon. So, okay. So, so, anyways, when he died, a lot of stuff died with him. So, to wrap up the Franks real quick, we have Louis the Pious, basically in France. We have Pepin in Italy, who was basically Charles' successor, really, but not kind of confirmed. And then, so Louis went on to give his three sons crowns in 817. Luther, Lothair, Pippin. I think last episode I made a mistake and said that Lothair was a son of Charles the Great. No, no, no. So Lothair is the son of um, Louis, so the grandson of Charles the Great. And he's the guy that gets that, gets that sliver, basically all the way from the North Sea all the way down to the Mediterranean, that, that sliver between Italy and France and Germany and France. And Germany and France especially would fight over that. That's the Alsace. Um, it's still known as Lorraine, Lothringen, uh, the Alsace-Lorraine region of France today and occupied by Germany many, many times, um, was a German city for, for centuries, really. So, I mean, that that having that third brother, like I said, caused a lot of issues, and almost immediately. Okay, but then we have Pepin was made king of Aquitaine, and the eight-year-old Louis, now a different Louis, became king of Bavaria. And this, okay, first of all, this is kind of the Frankish downfall. Um, their weird succession laws crumble, just one of the most powerful empires of the time, just a single death makes it all fall apart, really. And we have, okay, so just, just we've mentioned all this before, but just some areas, because there's a lot of expansion also in these next generations. So now we're, like, the whole Frankish realm as a whole is expanding. We still have Neustria and Austrasia, or Austria, like Germany and France. And then we have the Frisians that we talked about, which were a Frankish realm at this point. They, they had conquered them. Saxony definitely is Frankish at this time. Thuringian, where which is already pretty far east, that's where other Saxons and those came from. Northern Alemann, like getting into northern Germany and Moravia, Bohemia, part of Hungary, so pretty far east. And now we have under Italy, Louis the Pious, who I mentioned, and he gave Bavaria to his son. Okay, and we have Aquitaine and southern France by a different person. And so all the f children basically fighting. And they decided to agree on a peace. And in Verdun, they, dis they split it up into three 
parts. And that's, like I said, so Pepin gets Aquitaine. Charles the Bald is west of the Rhone, the Seine, and Meuse, the Scheldt. And Lothringen, Lothair, gets from the North Sea all the way down to Italy and Calabria. It just, just eastward of the Rhine, a little sliver all the way through Europe. And they just kept on going. So that didn't really matter. They had this, you know, they had this talk. Anyway, so, okay, Ludwig, now known as Ludwig of Bavaria, Louis of Bavaria, would start, I mean, you can, he he was not the king of Germany, but um, you can start to to call him what we recognize as Germany. His borders and then his, the, the dynasties after him would definitely be Germany. And now, okay, so he's still a Frank, direct descendant of Charles the Great, right? He is now the Bavarian king, and he's kind of taken over. So, Lothair's son, also Lothair, became king of Lorraine, so Lothrian, Lotari Regnum, and his young, youngest son, Charles, becomes king of Provence. Okay, anyways, none of that matters because everybody dies. Next generation, we got Charles the Fat, who you might have heard of because now he is son of no longer Louis the, the Bavarian, but we can call him Louis the German. And Charles the Fat, again, is kind of known because he's temporarily the whole king of the whole Frankish realm. And now we're talking turn of the 10th century. We get the Vikings really starting to come in. And in 911, Charles the Simple, who is now ruler of France, gave the Vikings the Duchy of Normandy. It's called, it wasn't called Normandy. It was more like Britannia and, and Aramorica. It's that region. But now it was just the whole thing. He called it the Norman. He gave it to the Normans and that became Normandy. And he gave that to them in order to leave the rest of the country alone. And now a century and a half later, 1066, exactly 155 years, a French Norman descendant of this duke would become King of England. William the Conqueror, okay? So not a Frank, but given Normandy by Franks because uh, they were Vikings. So this this is, uh, I know that, that that's an important, that you guys all know that story basically. So Charles the Simple, now we kind of know how he roughly, that, you know, he's a direct descendant of Charles the Great, great grandson or something. Uh, yeah, it was like um, hundred years later. Okay, so that's the French side. Jump back to Germany, back a little bit. History of Germany, after Ludwig the German goes to Arnulf, and he's still a Carolingian Frank. He was crowned emperor in Rome in 896. Okay, so he's emperor of what? Well, he's the East Frankish emperor. I still wouldn't call him Holy Roman Emperor, but we definitely have a tradition now. We have a precedence. All these people are being going off to Rome to be crowned emperor. The German ones are. The French ones are not. So the, it's the German ones that rule Rome still. And that's why this would become the Holy Roman Empire, when they would really differentiate themselves and no longer be the East Frankish Empire. By the turn of the 11th century, we can safely speak of France, Francia, okay. And of course, there's an area in central Germany that was also a duchy called Francia, which is just another spelling for Francia, really. And then, of course, we have... Uh, names like Frankenwald, like with like Frank Frankish Forest, Frankenau, the Frankish what is an owl, a valley, a, a field, a meadow, um, Frankenstein, obviously that's right, the Frankenstone Castle, um, Frankenberg. There's actually a couple of them, like Frank Frankish Mountains, um, Frankenthal, which directly means Frankish Valley, Franconia, Frankfort, Frankfurt, which both means 
you know, f- uh, 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 where you can ford the Rhine, where, th- <laughs> where the Franks would ford the mine, for instance. Um, Frankenhofen, like the court of the Franks. The Frankische Krombach, it's just the Frankish Krombach, whatever the heck that means. Um, okay, Krombach means crooked creek. The Frankische, or maybe that could be a false friend. Frankische Resat, Frankische Fels, the Frankish um, boulders. Frankekleist, Franco-Champs. Yeah, even in, then of course, on the French and Belgian, there's Franco-Champ, Franche-Comte, Villefranche. There's seven Villefranche, Francoville, and more. I mean, there's there's so many more. So even including the last name Franklin. By the way, Benjamin Franklin was a descendant of Franks. And then, of course, there's even the currency, like the French franc, the Swiss franc. Now they use the euro, but there's still the, the Swiss franc, for instance. That comes all the way back. That's that's a you know Frankish thing. The word franchise, by the way, comes from the Franks. And, okay, so now the Carolingians die out in France. And with, uh, with that, we're going to end... I mean, we're going to keep going back to France in terms of wars, but no longer in terms of, like... German dynasties, Germanic tribes. We can leave France behind us. Now, by their death, France is a thing. So when the Franks die out, they're the oldest protector of the Catholic Church and play an important role for future popes, just like a different role, but just as important as the Holy Roman Empire. And every bit is just as important. Don't tell Germans I said that, but the Carolingians die out in Germany too. Well, for a short time, they come back. But a Saxon king is elected, and that's the topic of the next few episodes, the Saxons. So I'm going to backtrack. I mean, I'll, I'll go over more detail of the transition and all that, but I wanted to finish up the Franks a little bit better than I than I had done and, and kind of wrap all the Frankish miniseries in a nice, neat bow and, and all that. So now we're really ready for the kings. And they, too, would play an important role with future popes and try to take the mantle from the French as successors to Charlemagne, or from the Germans, I should say, but from the Franks, for sure, and compete by eventually calling themselves the Holy Roman Empire. That's how they would compete with France. So they would really, I mean, so France was an empire. Just, it was. They, they didn't even need to call themselves empire. That didn't happen until Napoleon. They were just kings of France, and they knew that they were above other kings, and they were, generally. Um, so to compete, the Germans kind of had this inferiority complex, is how I saw, see it, and they dealt, they called themselves the Holy Roman Empire, um, with Rome in their dominion, summoned by the Pope, crowned emperor, just like good old Charles, so Otto would, yeah, so not to jump ahead, but Saxons would have a very similar role. And now the history of Germany would diverge here, conquering more lands to the east, having Hungarians and Slavs and Danes in their dominions. And so our series on the Franks comes to an end. Okay, don't worry. Germany will be back in Frankish hands once more. But first, it's time for someone else to take the reins for once. And so next time, join me for the history of the Saxons and the beginning of the Kingdom of Germany and slowly the Holy Roman Empire. The History of Germany podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. And this month, the podcasts of the month are The Secret Cabinet and Bohemican. You can find both of those on podcastnick.com along with many other great shows. Danke fürs Zuhören und auf Wiedersehen. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The 
world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.